1: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and that funny little thing we call democracy. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. That's my beat at Slate. And 2024 seems to be beginning as it is most likely to proceed, leaving us longing for the lower stakes, pedestrian constitutional crises of years gone by. Arguments at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday tackled the question of whether former presidents have some kind of free-floating blanket immunity from criminal prosecution because they think they do. Arguments did not go well for the former commander-in-chief. And on Thursday, Donald J. Trump tried to bring his carnival-barking skills to closing arguments of the New York civil fraud trial that threatens the Trump Organization. Today, we're going to check in briefly with our Trump law correspondent, Jeremy Stahl, for an update on whether the slow crawl of legal accountability can put its skates on before the November elections. And then we're going to focus our energies on an issue we promised listeners to probe much more deeply— comes in the form of a case called Loper Bright v. Raimondo heralding the demise of the so-called Chevron Doctrine. This case, which is going to be heard next week at the high court, might have been the single most important case this term, but in the fog of abortion cases and Trump appeals, it's awfully easy to lose sight of the cases that are hyper-technical and faceless and rooted in decades of abstract fights about deregulation. Loper Bright is all of the above, and how it came to be at the high court is actually a fascinating story that has a lot to tell us about how this court does law, its legitimacy crisis, and the challenges it's facing in taking up some of the big Trump cases. Professor Ben Johnson is with us today to remind everybody that while issues of Trump and democracy and the rule of law are bubbling away on the front burner— A half-century fight to put an end to government regulation as we know it may be coming to a boil on the back burner. But first, to the simmering front burner, the D.C. Circuit heard arguments in one of the linchpin cases around the Trump insurrection trial brought by special counsel Jack Smith in Washington. The three appellate judges took turns probing whether a president has what's known as blanket immunity from criminal prosecution for any official act undertaken while he was in office. Joining us to discuss Tuesday's hearing is Jeremy Stahl. He covers Trump law, trademark, all of the Trump trials, civil and criminal, and somehow he still manages to bathe and shave every single day. Jeremy welcome back
2: I didn't actually shave this morning though you can you can see it's not it's still there's some stubble there and it's it's definitely this has affected my shaving habits I think this Trump coverage I I will concede that much
1: listeners Jeremy Stahl unshaven um Jeremy I want to start with what just was quite an extraordinary oral argument that we heard from the appellate panel. Three women judges who were trying to figure out whether to kind of clear, uh, jumpstart the January 6th trial that is right now on pause in Judge Chutkin's court surrounding the events of January 6th. And in order to do that, they have to answer this question, which is kind of narrow and also (laughs) huge, which is, does the president have absolute immunity from prosecution for his allegedly criminal acts if those acts were taken as part of his quote-unquote official duties? And uh, the way this played out, it essentially led to just a string of hypotheticals. About the potential chilling criminal conduct that, as I think we noted on last week's show, a president could take and be immune from prosecution for, and some of them didn't feel hypothetical at all.
0: Let's listen. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. So, So your answer is... Is, no. is, my answer is qualified, yes.
1: So, Jeremy, let's start at the core of it. The principal argument that's being advanced by Trump's attorney, John Sauer, was essentially that Trump can only be convicted in a criminal proceeding if he has been impeached and removed by the Senate before that. Now, this is demonstrably insane. It's unsupported by history. It's under by language and logic. But that was kind of what they had and they went for it.
2: Well, this is what they have to do. They have to argue for the broadest and boldest claim they can in order to basically put this trial on hold. This is all part of Trump's strategy of delay. In all likelihood, this appeal has to be decided before that trial can go forward, the key trial over Trump's actions on January 6th. And so the goal here is delay. As outrageous as the argument is that Presidents cannot be prosecuted for their actions unless they've been impeached and convicted. There is a very specific purpose here. And the purpose is to keep this trial on hold, get the Supreme Court to take up this case and keep it on hold is is another goal here. And the judges in this D.C. appellate circuit panel really were having none of it. And what, what you had was you had Judge Florence Pan and Judge Michelle Childs, two Biden appointees, asking very aggressive questions of Trump's appellate attorney, John Sauer, about what were the implications of this argument. And the implications, as you've heard, are just, they're just horrifying. The implications are a president could accept bribes for pardons. He could commit insurrection, as has been accused here. He or she could sell military secrets to foreign governments. A president could, and this was specifically asked in a royal argument, order SEAL Team 6 ordered the US military to assassinate political opponents and as long as the president was not impeached in the house and convicted in the senate then the president would get off scot free so that that would include say the president does one of these actions the military assassination and resigns the next day or resigns before he's caught or his term ends before this is any of this activity is uncovered according to Trump's attorney, and he did his best not to concede that this was his argument, but it was his argument. All of this is just something that can happen without any consequence. It's a scary place to be. And the judges and the DOJ attorney who was arguing this case made very clear how scary (laughs) this argument was.
1: Right. And it, I guess, bears saying That this is happening exactly as Donald Trump is actually making claims about wanting to execute enemies, making claims about being dictator on the very first day, making claims about staying in office and refusing to leave. So this isn't Richard Nixon land, although Nixon comes up a lot. This is someone who's actually saying every one of your like nightmare hypotheticals. I'm curious, say more. And that's what makes it, I think, doubly Chilling. I wanted to talk for a second about the way in which Sauer kept trying to answer those hypotheticals, particularly in colloquies with Judge Pan, by saying, when she would say, so Trump can do this, like, insert unspeakable lawless act here, and he'd be immune. And Sauer's answer kept being, like, not if he was um, convicted in the House and, 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 and removed by the Senate. Like, his answer is... I'm not saying he's immune. I'm saying he's only immune uh, if he hasn't already been impeached for it. And that was his, like, clever way of getting out from under the parade of horribles.
2: Well, well, Judge Pan is a former prosecutor, and she was definitely the one who took the implications of this most seriously, who made the implications of it most clear, and who was most aggressive in her questioning of Sauer. And as you say, he did not have an answer. He did not want to answer the question again, Judge Pan, a former prosecutor, posed these as a series of yes, no questions. Yes, could a president get away with this if they were not impeached and convicted? And John Sowers response was it's a qualified yes if they're impeached or convicted but that wasn't the question the question was ignore that and she had to she had to repeatedly ask the same question over and over and over again finally at one point he said something along the lines of well those are extreme examples of potential presidential actions which is not an yes they are extreme that's the point is that the hypothetical is extreme you know what else is extreme encouraging a mob to storm the capital on the day that the votes are being certified in the election that you lost. That's an extreme example as well. So, you know, there's all sorts of extreme examples out there, I guess, is what I would say in response to uh, Mr. Sauer's argument.
1: It wasn't lost on me listening that unlike some of the other proceedings that are taking place at Mar-a-Lago, taking place in Fulton County, Georgia, the three judges sitting in this case were only a few blocks away from where the insurrection happened and there's a layer of this that is so acutely visceral and real to them and you could hear that i think in some places this these are not hypothetical hypotheticals they live in that town i wanted to ask about there's a jurisdictional question underneath all of this about whether this panel was even appropriately hearing this appeal at this moment can you talk that through
2: Yeah, the three-judge panel decided to hear this question that was not briefed by either side, but was instead part of an amicus brief by American Oversight, which is this good government group that does very good work, that said, well, jurisdictionally, this shouldn't even be an interlocutory appeal. This shouldn't be an appeal that puts things on hold. This should be an appeal that is heard after the trial has concluded and a jury has rendered its verdict because of the way technically that immunity is not explicitly mentioned in the constitution is something that applies to the president. It's an implied thing. And because the Supreme Court has said, you know, previously in a case called Midlands Asphalt, that it has to be a question of whether it's an explicit command of the constitution. Therefore, this is not an explicit command of the constitution. Therefore, it should not this case should not be on hold. It should go back to the trial. You should decide this at a later date. It was basically asking for a punt. The judges seemed curious about this, specifically Judge Karen Henderson, who was seemed to be very, very worried about what she called and what Trump's lawyer posed as the floodgates of future prosecutions against future presidents opening up because of Uh, a ruling in this case that struck down immunity. So she sounded like she might be looking for an avenue to punt, but really it sounded more likely that this case is going to be decided on the merits. Karen Henderson, I should note, raised one of the better points of this. And and I think that you were right to say that the subtext here was that they live here. This is their home. They're right down the block from this Capitol. Karen Henderson is a Republican appointee. She was appointed by George H. W. Bush in previous Trump cases, such as uh, a case about Michael Flynn's charges being dismissed, and a case about Congress being able to get Trump's tax documents. She sided with the dissents and opposed accountability for the Trump side. But here, in this argument, she very, very much was skeptical of what Trump's attorney was offering, and she raised one of the best lines, I would say, of the entire day when she said, you know, a president has a duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Isn't it a bit paradoxical that he has he has this duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and that allows him to break the law? And that was a question that I really think there's there's no good answer for, and, the, and John Sauer did not have a good answer for this.
1: Jeremy, you know where we're going next. It's the place we always go, you and I, off into the sunset over the scorching dumpster fire that is these trials, and that is a little bit of a two-parter, but it's a two-part Dumpster fire. I I guess I, you know, you you said in response to my very first question, and this is, you know, obviously correct. The point here is run out the clock. My question is, say they decide really quickly, say this trial starts close to the trial date that it is uh, meant to start and say it almost even starts to resolve Are we going to get there in time, or is this just, as you said, a road that can be made infinitely bumpy with more and more and more appeals? And I guess related to that is just the question, which I've asked you so many times on this show before, but I think it is the question that folks are listening for, which is, are we doing this right when we cover these hearings and we, LOL, funny, look at, you know, Judge Pan burning John Sauer with the Navy SEAL question, ha ha ha, Trump's arguments are so dumb, ha ha ha, you know, best quotes from the SmackDown argument. Is there a way we can metabolize what happened this week that isn't just Bread and Circus?
2: I'll go to to the Bread and Circus question first, which is, to my mind, pointing out just how outrageous and how dangerous these arguments are from Trump's teams and and the legal implications of what, what it is that they're saying and what it would mean for our democracy, what it would mean for our republic. It really places the onus on the appellate court, first the DC Circuit Court, and the Supreme Court to understand those stakes, right? And to treat the cases with respect for those stakes. So that leads into your first question, which is to say, I think that the DC circuit will, and and this is what people who have been paying attention to these potential timelines have said, they're likely to act quickly and there's a way that they can act quickly that quickly remands this back to Judge Chutkin's courtroom and then places the burden on Trump to appeal quickly to the Supreme Court. Then the burden becomes on the Supreme Court to say, are we going to countenance this? Are we going to potentially live in a world where these absurd, insane bread and circus scenarios are the real life world we're living in? And I think that's a pressure point that needs to be applied. And I think applying it has a strong likelihood and an ability to move this trial forward, which is a long-winded way of answering your first question to say, I don't think, it's not going to remain on, absolute track, but there's a chance that we get a spring-summer trial, which would mean that this trial, this case, this prosecution that is critical for voters to understand ahead of this election should likely, again, depending on what the Supreme Court does and whether they're willing to countenance this, should go forward before the election is held, which is absolutely essential to my mind for our democracy.
1: Jeremy Stahl covers the law of Trump, trademark, and all of its various tentacles for us here at the magazine. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Dahlia. Later on in the show, Slate Plus listeners will get a chance to hear more from Jeremy on the law of Trump. We're going to look back to this past week in court in downtown Manhattan as the New York civil fraud trial wrapped up. And we're going to look ahead to the week that is coming in court in downtown Manhattan as the E. Jean Carroll defamation case gets underway. That case is known as Egene 1 because last year's case was known as Egene 2, so mm, it's a prequel? Listen, you're going to need to listen in to catch up, and if you are not a Slate Plus member but would like to hear bonus segments like my conversations with Jeremy and our jurisprudential brother-in-arms, Mark Joseph Stern, please go to slate.com slash amicusplus to check out the benefits of membership, slate.com Amicus Plus, and to our Slate Plus members, thank you, thank you. We could not do what we do without your support. And now, back to the Supreme Court, which has agreed to hear the case about whether Trump is properly disqualified from the Colorado ballot under the 14th Amendment. The court heard oral arguments again this past week in a host of cases It also agreed to take on a second really vitally important abortion case. Were we not sitting smack in the midst of the most important election year in modern times, we would probably also be realizing that we're sitting smack in the middle of the most important SCOTUS term of all time. Last spring, we promised you, as part of our larger pledge to cover the High Court more skeptically, that one of the issues we would try to excavate was, how does a lawsuit even get to the Supreme Court? Is it really true that this body, with discretion to grant and refuse cases, magically just quote gets the 50 or 60 most important cases every year? Or is there some way in which a case that comes to the court dressed as one thing, somehow leaves as a totally different thing, in which an appeal can be gamed to raise issues that did not appear to be all that material. Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimundo, which will be heard next week, is a case that started its life as a kind of dorky little lawsuit about government inspectors on fishing boats and somehow arrives at the court as what may be a Trojan horse seeking to take out federal agencies' power to define their own regulations. This isn't just a consequential case on its own terms. It's also a very complicated story of where little baby juggernauts are born. More importantly, it takes us on a two centuries-long jaunt through the nature of the court's cert-grant system, with interesting side roads through the conservative legal movement's use of that system to game the docket. And all of this comes to you listeners with a side of herring. So, Joining us to discuss all this is Ben Johnson. He's an associate professor of law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. He researches and writes on governance by committees, and his recent work on the Supreme Court has been published in Columbia Law Review and Alabama Law Review And in The Atlantic, his recent article, The Little Known Rule Change That Made the Supreme Court So Powerful, was actually published in The Atlantic about this case last month. And his Columbia Law Review piece raises these same questions we want to explore around the court's gatekeeping functions and its Own legitimacy. So, Ben, welcome to Amicus. I think that may be the first time I ever introduced a guest with use of the word
0: herring. Well, it is an honor and a privilege both to be here and to have that august honor.
1: Let's just start with the facts of this case. Let's start with the fishermen, since this really was meant to be, as you noted in your Atlantic piece, a a little case about fishermen who were balking under a regulation that required them to, quote, carry government inspectors as observers on their fishing boats so those observers could monitor compliance with some federal agency rules. Let's just start with this particular case and how it
0: came to be. Sure. There's some guys who want to make a living as fishermen. It's not a super profitable way to make a living, but you know, apparently there's a lot of family-owned businesses that have been there for a long time. The government has a legitimate interest in maintaining fisheries, and so they have federal regulations and a federal agency to oversee the fishing laws. And the statute gives this agency the power to place observers on the fishermen's boats to make sure that the fishermen are following the laws they're out there like trolling for herring and such the statute says that the agency can force the fishermen to carry the observers but observers don't work for free. So the question is, who's going to pay the observers? And you might think that if these are federal employees, the, you and I would be paying these employees through our taxes. But the agency decided instead to make the fishermen pay for it, which, you know, according to the briefs in this case, you know, amounted to 20% of the total revenue brought in on an already pretty low margin business. And so effectively, the agency reinterpreted a statute that said carry to mean pay for. And so now we just have a sort of an interesting question. Does carry mean pay for? So you uh, you can sort of understand where the agency's coming from. They don't have a big budget. Congress didn't appropriate the money. They wanted them to do this. So surely they got to get it from somewhere. So the fishermen seem like the obvious place. On the other hand, if you ask me to carry your cat to the vet, I might not reasonably understand that to mean that I should also pay for your cat's vet bill. And so I don't, I don't know that you're, statement carry my cat to the vet was particularly ambiguous and your interpretation that that also means I should pay for your cat's vet visit I might not find that to be particularly reasonable and that's kind of where the case started and then the DC circuit said well under chevron carry is sort of ambiguous and pay for might be a reasonable interpretation of that and then we get the supreme court and the fisherman basically asked the court two questions one what 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 do you mean? Like how how is this ambiguous? How is this reasonable? That that can't possibly be right. And then the second question is if that's what Chevron really means and what it does, is it time to either get rid of Chevron entirely or maybe redo Chevron quite a bit? And you know, both of those are reasonable questions that you as a lawyer might ask. But what's interesting is the Supreme Court only decided to answer the second question. So they're not going to let the fishermen make the argument that carry can't possibly mean pay for. They're only going to let the fishermen make the argument that it's time for Chevron to go, or at least for it to be radically overhauled. That's how this, you know, A couple guys fishing for some herring off the coast of Maine turned into maybe the biggest administrative law case in 40 years.
1: So this requires, I'm afraid, an explanation of Chevron. And you know as well as I do what happens to our listeners' eyes when we say Chevron doctrine. And so I am going to ask you to make your best possible effort to explain why Chevron is the single most important, boring doctrinal case that everybody should care about. (laughs) Go. 1983.
0: Wow. Okay. So um, it's it's one of many doctrines in administrative law that give an enormous amount of discretion and power to agencies. And what's kind of interesting about it is historically, it was Republicans who really liked Chevron because this emerges during the Reagan revolution where the Republicans are very worried about Democrats and the courts that are kind of preempting and preventing the Reagan revolution from achieving its policy ends. And uh, Reagan thinks, well, look, I control the agencies if I don't control the courts. So effectively, the Republicans on the Supreme Court arrange Chevron and a, some similar doctrines to give the agencies the discretion to achieve things and take away tools from the lower courts that were perhaps more hostile to the Republican program. It prevents them from blocking Reagan and what he wants to do. And so this type of administrative uh, law doctrine Here, what Chevron says is, look, if the statute's ambiguous, so long as the agency's interpretation of that statute is reasonable, we're going to defer to the agency, right? And so that gives the Reagan administration a lot of power to reinterpret possibly ambiguous statutes in ways that further the Reagan revolution. Fast forward 40 years, and the conservative legal movement is far less sanguine about the administrative state. And now the view is that the administrative state is a bunch of um, uh, public sector union members who are trying to pursue the uh, Democratic Party platform objectives. And so we need the courts, which are now largely Republican, to step in and oversee what those agencies are doing and further the legitimate goals of the conservative legal movement is sort of one way to think about it. And so the Republican view of Chevron is flipped. And so I think what's maybe the most important thing about Chevron is that It is one of many such doctrines that give agencies enormous discretion, but maybe the most important thing is it just points out how this type of doctrine is sort of a volleyball. It gets batted back and forth as executives and courts think about, you know, who they want to be the final arbiter of different policies.
1: And you've made, I think— Pretty explicitly, the sort of political argument about how it is that Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas are all on board with Chevron initially. I guess it's worth noting a very young Neil Gorsuch was one of the people who started to lead the attack. But bracket for a minute, Ben, the sort of political question about, you know, who's in power and who wants to cabin who's in power. I think that in almost self-evident way, uh, one actually wants, I think, to have agencies who understand particulate matter in a way that judges don't, right? Who understand very technical, scientific questions or financial questions. We prefer this in the world chiefly because of little things like science and medicine and expertise and efficiency. So the sort of pitch for letting agencies have broad latitude to interpret Their own statutes is essentially saying, you know, who's really bad at doing like particulate science questions? Judges, right? So this becomes, in a sense, in addition to the political volleyball you're describing, this very, very big question of do we want courts to act as a kind of super legislature, second guessing experts in the field who have done this work for their lives,
0: right? I think that's the standard defense of such doctrines. I think Loper Bright points out that that's not how this often works in practice, right? Because I'm not really sure in whatever graduate program you go to, you know, marine biology or whatever else to be a monitor, where they teach you how to interpret the word carry vis-a-vis the meaning pay for. So quite often, I think these sorts of interpretations about the scope of agency power and things like that those kind of lay outside the sort of technical expertise that we really do have an interest in possibly letting experts have, right? And so Chevron is particularly troublesome, I think, for people going back to Gorsuch, is because it sort of bootstraps the technical expertise that we might want to give agencies and how they accomplish their mission into a license for them to interpret what their mission is and what tools they are allowed to implement to achieve that mission. And I think those are sort of different questions. And this is where the politics come into play, right? So if your view is that the courts are a more reliable enforcer of your view of policy, then you don't want agencies to have the ability to expand or contract their mission or expand or remove tools from their belt. But if you think the agencies are going where you want to go, especially vis-a-vis, the, you know, compared to the courts, then you, you want to allow the agencies greater room to pick where they'd like to go and to have the power that they would like to achieve that mission. But I, I think that what we're sort of talking about here are these kind of first-order policy concerns, not the sort of second-order implementation concerns, you know, where I think the argument from expertise really makes a lot more sense.
1: So that's a really good way of getting to you know the bulk of your argument, which is— these fishermen actually had a really legitimate (laughs) gripe. They were being asked to pay huge amounts, like huge proportions of uh, their uh, take-home pay to have monitors on their boats. That's how this was supposed to get decided. Can you just very quickly walk us through what happens in the courts below in this case?
0: So as is often the case in administrative law, work is done at the administrative level um, with the agency, and then it goes directly to the D.C. Circuit. The DC Circuit splits two to one and says that uh, applying Chevron, the agency came up with a reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute. There's one dissent that says this is um, crazy, and then we have the petition for certiorari to the court. It's kind of interesting. Like with a lot of administrative law cases, you don't have a like a trial at the district court level and the development of like a big record, and you might kind of think this is an interesting thing. This goes back to your point about who has the expertise, right? So, you know, you don't want in a lot of technical cases potentially to ask, you know, 12 randomly selected members of the community to sit on a jury in front of a judge with a law degree and no scientific expertise to determine whether or not somebody broke some hyper-technical statute or something like that, some regulatory rule. And so you might want to let the experts, you know, sort of sit in judgment on that, And so that's why we have this sort of adjudicatory framework in the agencies. But you do want to have some sort of review, so we skip right to the circuit courts. But the cost of that is we don't really have this kind of fulsome record. And you kind of wonder, like, maybe this is the case that should have gone in front of 12 people who could have said, wait, what? Carry means pay for? That can't possibly be right. And so, that you know, we each kind of find ourselves here, right, where uh, a bunch of people who have a strong set of incentives – Obviously, the agency has incentives to maximize its authority and its power and its ability to put monitors on boats at, not on somebody else's nickel. And the D.C. Circuit has kind of a long-standing line of precedence and a sort of an institutional interest in being the arbiter over Chevron doctrine and such. And now we're at the court, and that's you know kind of how we got here.
1: We're all very hyper-focused on Chevron here. We've been talking about it certainly on this show, I think, since Neil Gorsuch was nominated, that this was part of, you know, the plan was going to be eventually to knock the legs out of Chevron. But I want to ask you, is there a kind of funny, uh, the minnow has swallowed the whale quality going on here because in the time that Chevron has been in the crosshairs for all the political reasons we've talked about, the court has kind of, out of whole cloth, fashioned the major questions doctrine, which is another way to limit and curb agency power and regulatory authority. Just a few months ago in the loan forgiveness case, the court more or less gave itself almost unchecked and uncheckable power to review federal agency decisions as long as they're, according to the major questions doctrine, quote, questions of vast economic and political significance, whatever that means. So is there a way in which this battle about how agencies treat their own statutes and the level of specificity required has already been kind of won and lost in the major questions sort of field of combat. And so we're now having this kind of weird backdoor conversation about Chevron, which in fact almost doesn't matter anymore.
0: Well, I do think they're related. They're sort of uh, getting at the same same situation of what happens when there's some— play in the joints here, and things could go one way or the other. And, you know, which side is the thumb going to be on the scale, in some sense? So Chevron is designed to put a thumb on the scale of the agency, and clearly the major questions doctrine is designed to put a thumb on the scale of the courts, right? I don't think that either of these doctrines are particularly clear or lead to sort of neutral principles here, right? So um, if carry can mean pay for, then ambiguous and reasonable can mean a lot of different things. And I don't know that the scope of that is any more limited than the scope of what is a major question. So I think in some sense, the court has effectively said the same types of ambiguity, the same types of reasonableness that when it was in doubt before, we were willing to kind of side with the agency. Now we're sort of willing to say like, you know, if it bugs us enough, we're going to go against the agency. And I think it's maybe more a difference in emphasis than a change of kind of like approach. But I do think that the formalities matter, right? So if, as long as Chevron's on the books, the court has to explain why it's doing something different. And as long as the major questions doctrine is not on the books, they have to explain what they're up to. But if you can remove Chevron from the books and put the major questions doctrine on it, then the shift of litigation focuses, right, away from, hey, agencies have all this authority because of their expertise to interpret ambiguous statutes in reasonable ways and turns into a, hey, this is a really important thing that affects the lives of lots of people or has, you know, you know, multi-million dollar consequences. Agencies shouldn't be able to get away with it just because they say it's ambiguous, I think it's sort of just which way are you going to tilt if you're the court? And I think this is why I started with the political story is that, you know, at the beginning of the Reagan revolution, the court wanted to tilt in favor of the agencies because uh, Republicans thought they were going to be able to control those agencies by winning elections. And now the Republicans are able to control these outcomes by having won the courts. And I think that's sort of where we are.
1: We're going to pause now to hear from some of our great sponsors. We're back now with Professor Ben Johnson talking about how it is that the court came to pick and choose the questions it granted in a case. So now we're at the beating heart of, I think, the concern that animates both your Law Review and uh, your Atlantic piece, which is this question of the court is always making choices and they're not always visible and legible to us. And, you know, we've talked about this you know, Steve Laddick's been on the show. He worries a lot about the discretionary docket. Your point is that it's not just that the high court with this discretionary docket is picking its cases. It's actually picking its issues within the cases as though it were kind of, you know, uh, Mrs. Howell on Gilligan's Island, like going through a box of chocolates, right? And I've just probably dated myself and possibly you. But um that's the issue, is that it's not just a discretionary docket because it gets to pick its appeals. It also gets to look at the issues. I think you call it a sort of choose your own ending uh version of discretion, where it actually gets to pick the issues within the cases. And I wonder, just because I think uh, that progression is not obvious. Uh, the early history of this is quite complicated. So can you just take us back to how this used to be done and how that shift started to happen? Because I think your larger point is initially this was just a court that couldn't keep up with its
0: workload. Right. So if you just go back and think about what is a court, two people have a problem with each other. They've got a, a fight between them. We'd like to resolve that peacefully in a in front of a tribunal. And so there's some things that, uh, for the plaintiff to prevail, that they have to prove to a court. If they can prove those things, then they win, right? So suppose they win, then uh, the defendant appeals, and so now the defendant's the petitioner at the appellate court. And there's a set of things that the defendant has to be able to convince the court of in order to reverse the lower court, or there's a set of things that if the original plaintiff can maintain, we'll be able to preserve the judgment below. But effectively, what's supposed to happen at the appellate court level is the appellate court's taken a second look at what happened at the trial court and said, did they screw up so badly that we need to reverse this thing? But they have to figure out like all the possible ways they could have screwed up in such a way to reverse, and they have to look at everything that happened below to figure that out. And f- until, you know, for the first 100 and 30, forty years or so, that's how the Supreme Court operated. Anytime somebody appealed, the Supreme Court had to take the case. And when they took the case, they had to review the entire record below for error. And if they found anything on the record below that was deeply problematic, they reversed it, right? Come to 1925, and we get something called the Judge's Bill. And here, Chief Justice Taft, formerly the President, President Taft, um, who had said that the Supreme Court should have absolute and arbitrary control over its agenda, Arranges for Congress to give the court massive certiorari jurisdiction, which means we will get to choose what cases we hear. But the congressmen are sort of concerned that the justices are going to not take their jobs super seriously anymore, maybe not work that hard. So they ask the justices, like, hey, what are you going to do with this power? And they say, look, anytime we grant certiorari, we're going to decide the case in the ordinary course, which means all the questions within it and and, and Congress was very clear that this is what was going to happen because they wrote in the statute that when you grant certiorari, you will proceed as if on a writ of error or appeal, which if any of your listeners have hard time going to sleep, they should just go into the history of writ of error and appeal. But effectively, these are old school legal devices that say you have to review the entire record for mistakes. You have to review the entire thing. And that's what the justices promised to do in 1925. In 1927, in a case called Olmstead, which you may remember as the wiretapping case out of Washington State, it's a fun case where there's a a bootlegging operation that gets caught in a wiretap. And so the question is whether or not this warrantless wiretap violates the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. But there was another question in the case about whether or not a warrantless wiretap that was undertaken in violation of state law could be included in the evidence in a federal trial. And the defendants in that case petitioned to the Supreme Court and asked not only the Fourth and Fifth Amendment questions about search and seizure and due process, but also the evidentiary question about whether or not it's appropriate in a federal trial to include evidence that had been recovered in violation of state law. And what Taft said, despite having told Congress differently 18 months before, was that we're going to take the case, but we're only going to ask the constitutional questions. And we're going to skip over the evidentiary question. And after that, it's off to the races. Hilariously, the second question the Supreme Court took in this manner was a case out of the Ninth Circuit where the Ninth Circuit looked at this case out of California and said, well, you know, there's a bunch of questions that they ask here and that we need to review ordinarily, but we only want to review the first one. So we're going to take a look at the first one and then send it back. And the Supreme Court slapped him down and said, naughty, naughty court, don't you know the role of an appellate court is to review all of the questions involved in a case? And then of course, you know, The Supreme Court stopped doing that very quickly. So by 1939, the Supreme Court's changed its rules. Instead of reviewing the entire case, they're only going to review the questions presented. And, of course, all along the way, starting back with Olmstead, the court has taken this to mean that not only can they limit their review to the questions that a petitioner asks, but they can change the questions that a petitioner asks. So they can remove questions like they did in Olmstead. They can add questions um, from time to time. And maybe the best example of this is a case that, you know, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, we'd be talking about Citizens United, right? And if you think back to Citizens United, the question of whether or not um the... Uh, campaign finance reform violates the First Amendment, and whether or not Austin should be overruled—that was actually waived in the lower courts. That was no longer a part of the case at all, and then the Supreme Court put it back in. So, um, not only was this not one of the questions presented, it was not even a—it was a question that had been forfeited by the petitioners, and the Supreme Court added it. And then uh, Justice Kennedy begins his opinion by, "In this case, we are asked to determine." Um, And of course, the only person who asked Justice Kennedy to determine this was Justice Kennedy. And so you'd look at this and you go, we are a long way from a world where a court simply looks at what happened below and figures out whether or not they did something wrong. We're now in a world where the court looks at it at a case in the lower court and says, "Hmm, this is an opportunity for me to say something I've been wanting to say for a while, and uh, to you know reaffirm or make some new law that I've been wanting to make for a while." And you know, I think that's a that's a dangerous place. I, I think it's important to note here that the Roberts Court is not exceptional in this. I mean, this goes back to Taft in twenty seven. The Warren court uses the certiorari power to generate the rights revolution. Um, so there's sort of a, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, the Supreme court's used this to do some things people like, and it's using it to do some things that people don't like. Just as an institutional matter, my point is that they're doing it and it, it strikes me as, uh, you know, not what they ought to be doing. And it's certainly not what they told Congress they would be doing.
1: I want to ask you one just purely technical question, and I'm embarrassed that I don't know the answer. You need four votes to grant cert. <sighs> do you need four votes, five votes, seven votes? How do you decide the questions?
0: Four. Four. So, so it's um, the same four. Yeah. So uh now they don't tell you this. The only way you can know this for sure, I mean, unless you can, you know, you can ask one of them and and, and you should. Um I, <laughs> I have not myself. But uh the you know, if you go back and look at the Blackman archive, you can find instances because Justice Blackman kept all of his docket sheets. And he would put check marks by the justices' votes on certiorari. And sometimes you would have two check marks, like when there were two separate questions being asked, and sometimes there would just be one. And so you would have like different vote tallies for uh, different questions potentially. Uh, But it's still the rule of four.
1: So I think this, the nut of your complaint is that these Poor fishermen can't win now. I mean, the only they, way they can win is on this big swing question around Chevron and that that's not what courts ought to be doing, <laughs> that courts ought to be able to answer, as you said at the top, there's a simple yes, no contested question about an agency rule that we will never get the answer to, right? That's the bulk of your, I mean, I know there's like a huge separation of powers and power struggles and politics valence here, but the sort of beating heart of what frustrates you is that we have lost our way if the fishermen just can't get an answer to their question. And I would love for you to unpack that
0: there's two levels that this this happens. So the first one that you mentioned is sort of the flesh and blood thing, right? Is that parties that show up at the Supreme Court are, are treated as as means and not as ends, right? So you show up at the Supreme Court and you feel like you've gotten a raw deal from a federal agency or from a state prosecutor or from a counterparty in the business transaction. Um, and you are excited to have your day in court where you're going to be vindicated. And in fact, the court only looks at you as an opportunity To say something they've wanted to say for a long time. Right. So, so think about these poor fishermen. They would like to just be able to go fish. The only way they're going to prevail in the Supreme Court is if the Supreme Court says, actually, you did Chevron wrong or Chevron's gone away. So go back and redo it. And they're going to toss the fishermen back into this, you know, agency abyss to, you know, fight another day. You know, they just want to go fish. Right? And they're not going to be able to, no matter what happens at the end of this. It's going to be a long, drawn-out process, or the agency's going to prevail. And if the agency prevails, it's not going to be because the justices decided that carry means pay-for. It's just going to be because they decided they didn't want to upset administrative law. And I think that's a bad thing. I think you know we, as citizens, should expect our Supreme Court to care about us as citizens, And I think that points to the second and bigger thing, which is the reason they don't care about us as citizens is because they look at us as a means to making policy, as a means to making law. And I just don't think that's the proper role for courts. I think it's entirely true, as as Justice Marshall said, that the Supreme Court has to declare what the law is. But he said you had to do that while deciding discrete cases. So when two people come before the court and they've got a dispute and the court must decide that dispute— you know, in the process of that, sometimes the justices will just have to answer a question that will declare some law. But the justices now don't declare law because they have to, to decide a case because they're not deciding cases. They're declaring law because they want to. They grant these petitions and grant the questions that allow them to make policy. And I think that just, you know, has turned them into a kind of a super legislature that's broadly unaccountable, And just displays a real lack of concern for the parties in front of it.
1: And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't also note, and and you sort of flick at this in your Atlantic piece, but if you want to amplify it, you can go ahead, that part of the thing animating this kind of slide away from deciding the discrete case and taking a big swing at policy is this kind of huge advent of the big, powerful political litigation shops and the wealthy donors and the amicus brief industrial complex trademark, all of which kind of get in on the ground floor. And, and I I think with a lot of money and power and secrecy, help shape these cases into something that maybe they were not intended to be. So it feels as though this kind of gets braided in with questions about Clarence Thomas was for Chevron until he was against it, you know, goes to Koch brothers events for lots of years and suddenly doesn't like agency regulations. It all gets braided in with the sort of pressing legitimacy questions that we're asking and we'll get to in a second because it feels as though it's been co co-opted. By very wealthy, very secretive, very interested parties who want the court to act as a super legislature.
0: I think you and I might kind of put the start the causal arrow at a different place there, right? So to me, I think that rich, powerful interests will always invest to try to get the policies they want. And they will find the people who are making the policies, find the policymakers, and they will go try to influence them, right? It was not the rich and the powerful and the amicus machines and the public interest lawyering houses that got the court to do this. It was the court itself that did this, and it turned itself into a super legislature that would be deciding discrete policy questions by how they manage their certiorari process. And once they did that, like I'm off to a flame, everybody comes calling. And so I think we end up in the same place that I think you, you know, appropriately described as deeply troubling that raises questions about the legitimacy of the court and about, you know, and and frankly, Congress. I mean, what is the point of Congress if they're going to, you know, not do anything other than go on Fox News or MSNBC and leave the actual governing to agencies and courts? This whole thing is sort of broken down, but I think it's not because of these third parties that are pushing the court to do certain things. I think it's because the court stepped in and said, hey, we want a new role for ourselves in American life. And I think all the other stuff is downstream of that. So once the court said we're open for business and we'll do the hard work of legislating, Congress stopped and people who used to lobby Congress now lobby the court. The sort of the original sin, if you will, is the court moving away from being a court and turning itself into a legislature. And what we're seeing now is the sausage-making of politics and legislatures. It's really unseemly because we'd like to think it's a court, but it just hasn't been for a really long time.
1: So I think that lands us right in the stew (laughs) of what, you know, in some sense on this show is the weekly nervous breakdown, which is What do we do about the legitimacy problem? What do we do with a court that has, I think, as you so correctly note, in some sense inflicted this wound on itself in terms of raising questions about how political and how nakedly political it is and how power grabby it is. It does lead me to this question of, you know, you and I are speaking immediately after the court has granted the Colorado ballot uh, case. The court has fundamentally in a very deep way already now inserted it itself Bush v. Gore style into the presidential election. I've written and I suspect you don't disagree, a court that is kind of like careening on the precipice of a legitimacy problem, probably didn't relish the idea that it was going to decide the 2024 election and even more in a granular way, who's going to be on the ballot. Can you walk me through how all of your thinking, I mean, we've been so descriptive, but maybe not normative how all your thinking leads you to think about both the Colorado case and the ways in which we have a court that, as you said, by its own hand, has raised real questions about its own legitimacy that probably will have to decide major questions around the 2024 election and how that plays out in your thinking about a court that people can have confidence in.
0: Sure. So I, I think the the Colorado litigation is really interesting, and I think the, the court is going to find itself in real problems because uh, for the first time in a long time, it's going to have to do the right thing, on my view, right? So there were two petitions out of Colorado. One was by the Colorado State GOP that asked three questions. Um, is the presidency in office? Is the president an officer? Is the 14th Amendment Section 3 self-executing? And then does the state party have a free association right to put whomever they want on the ballot, even if they might be disqualified? In my view, the second two questions are um, losers. Uh, the first one, you know, that, you know, is a plausible argument. But there's nothing in that petition about, was this an insurrection? Did Donald Trump engage in it? Was the process that, that Trump got in Colorado was it due process? Is it appropriate for state agencies to enforce the 14th Amendment, even if it is self-executing? There's a range of interesting and important questions that need to be answered there, and the state party didn't ask any of them. Whereas what Donald Trump did was he, his lawyers said, dear court, Colorado screwed up, please fix it, bye. And sort of left it to the court to review the entire case below and see what's going on, right? Now, in my view, that's what the court ought to be doing all the time, but it never really does. And that's the petition that the court granted, and that's what they're going to have to do in this case. But what that's going to look like to a whole bunch of reasonable observers is that the court went looking, if it decides for Donald Trump, it went looking for a way to get Donald Trump off, right? It went looking for a way to get him on the ballot, Donald Trump's lawyers couldn't even come up with a series of plausible questions. They just handed it over to the justices that Donald Trump put on court. Even his lawyers are talking about, you know, oh, well, you know, Trump put these justices on and they'll take care of him and that's what they're there for. And this is is horrific, right, you know, um, from a legitimate perspective for the court. But that's what it's going to look like because the court for the first time is going to be forced – first time in a long time – to go through the record and do what a court does and check – you know, to make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And if you find something wrong, they're going to have to do something about it. And that's just going to make everybody really mad. And so now I think we're in a situation where the court is going to really wish that they had had, you know, a decades-long tradition of looking at cases that come before it and saying, regardless of the questions that people put to us, regardless of what are the most important policy issues involved here, we have a job as you know, the final court, the highest court in this country, to make sure that what was done in the courts below us that we're responsible for was done correctly. And we don't care about the policy implications. We just care that justice was done according to the law in this instance. And they just can't say that now with this Trump petition. And they're going to wish they could. And I think that's a real problem. So um, if I can take the first part of your question as an invitation to say, like, what I think ought to happen, you know, they ought to just go back to doing this. They ought to take the Trump cases the f- say, like, look, this just points out to us that we need to get back in the business of just deciding cases and looking at lower court Decisions and just seeing it whether they were right or wrong and whether they were done correctly and we're going to get out of the business uh, making policy decisions and you know making decisions of large national consequences on issues because there are going to be enough big cases that are going to draw us into controversy we don't need to go looking for issues you mentioned the rule of four earlier and I think that's actually a way you could do it so there's an interesting feature about the way the court votes which is that the chief justice votes first and the progressives tend to vote you know in the middle. Right. In this instance. So in my view, the three progressives ought to vote to grant any case in which uh, Chief Justice Roberts or Clarence Thomas votes to grant. Right. And they should try to stuff 200 cases a term onto the court's docket. And they should try to make sure that every question and every case is properly before the court. Because if the court had to decide 150 cases a term and they had to decide them on every question in the record and they had to review the whole dadgum thing, then we would not have 180-page opinions on the history, philosophy, ethics, and economics of various policy proposals. We'd have a bunch of workmanlike decisions from a bunch of really good judges on whether or not what happened below was right or wrong. But instead, we have a world where the court decides 50 questions a term. Right. And I think, you know, the way to get out of that is to make them do more work and make them do the work they're supposed to do. And I think the easiest place to start with that is to try to use the rule of four to jam more work onto the platter.
1: I love the notion that the court that at one point just couldn't keep up with its workload, Ben, now is at the place where its workload is just writing 800 pages opinions in 50 cases. And all you're saying is just like, go back and be a court and try to do the thing that you were really having trouble with from the founding
0: that's right no I mean my I keep trying to tell people make the court a court again is is what I is what I'm after. but you know my uh, a colleague and I did some math and it works out that if you assume that there is a senior judge or a district judge sitting by designation on every three judge panel in the country so there's only two circuit judges per if you assume that, That works out to circuit judges deciding 550 cases a year, right? So that works out to about two a day um, for circuit judges. The justices decide about 50, about one a week. Um, And, you know, these guys were picked because they were supposed to be really good circuit judges. So surely we could up it to like two or three a week. That doesn't strike me as insane. And in fact, if you go back and you look at some of the testimony around the judge's bill, they asked the solicitor general, "Hey, if we if we give them this much discretion, how many cases do you think they'll be able to get to?" And he said, "Oh, they'll still be able to do 3 to 400, no problem." This isn't a world before <laughs> clerks. This is a world before Westlaw. This is a world before they actually had a Supreme Court building. They were working in the basement of the Senate at the time and working in coffee houses around town, and they were supposed to be able to decide 3 to 400 cases a term, and now it's like, well, you know, 50. Gosh. It's just so hard. Um, and I just, I just don't find that credible. Um, so I think the thing we really ought to do is find a way to make them work some more. It ought to be a high enough number that they're going to have to take the path of least resistance, which is just to check the work that was done before rather than try to figure out um, what can we do here.
1: Ben Johnson is an associate professor of law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. He research and writes on governance by committee, and his recent work on the Supreme Court has been published in the Columbia Law Review, Alabama Law Review, and The Atlantic. And the article we've been talking about today, The Little Known Rule Change That Made the Supreme Court so powerful, was published in The Atlantic last month. Ben, thank you so much. This has been immensely helpful and in a very, very very strange way quite reassuring thanks for being here
0: thanks for having me I really appreciate it
1: and that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus thank you so much for listening in thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your feedback you can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com and you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast Sarah Burningham is Amicus's senior producer. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. And we will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, hang on in there.